Episode 10. Coming to you live from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. This is CVS. And now here's your host, David Ross. Welcome back. It's my first triple header here, three in a row, bing, bang, boom. Like I said, I'm snowed in today, so I'm taking advantage and plowing through a lot of this Vatican II. Um, we're still on the dogmatic constitution on the church. We just talked last time about Blessed Virgin Mary and how she represents the church. She is the model of the church. And uh, we're sort of rushing through that last paragraph, so I'll just read it <clears throat> again. Or Mary prefigured profoundly in the history of salvation and in a certain way. Uh, so uh, for Mary, for Mary, oh, excuse me, for Mary figured profoundly in the history of salvation and in a certain way unites and mirrors within herself the central truths of the faith. Meditate on that. Hence, when she is being preached and venerated, she summons the faithful to her son and his sacrifice and to love for the Father. Seeking after the glory of Christ, the church becomes more like her exalted model and continually progresses in faith, hope, and charity, searching out and doing the will of God in all things. Hence, the church in her apostolic work also rightly looks to her who brought forth Christ, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin, so that through the church, Christ may be born and grow in the hearts of the faithful also. The Virgin Mary in her own life lived an example of that maternal love by which all should be fittingly animated who cooperate in the apostolic mission of the church on behalf of the rebirth of men. Beautiful sentiments. We should meditate on Mary. We should meditate on the church. And above all, we should seek to find the church and get into the church and stay in the church and help others into the church. Moving on now, we're talking about devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary still here. <clears throat> but this synod earnestly exhorts theologians, down at the bottom here, this synod earnestly exhorts theologians and preachers of the divine word that in treating of the unique dignity of the Mother of God, they carefully and equally avoid the falsity of exaggeration on the one hand and the excess of narrow-mindedness on the other. So, moderation always, the golden mean. Pursuing the study of sacred scripture, the Holy Fathers, the doctors, and liturgies of the Church, and under the guidance of the Church's teaching authority, let them rightly explain the offices and privileges of the Blessed Virgin, which are always related to Christ, the source of all truth, sanctity, and piety. Let them painstakingly guard against any word or deed which could lead separated brethren or anyone else into error regarding the true doctrine of the Church. <clears throat> Let the faithful remember, moreover, that true devotion consists neither in fruitless and passing emotion nor in a certain vain credulity. Rather, it proceeds from true faith, 
by which we are led to know the excellence of the mother of God and are moved to a filial love toward our mother and to the imitation of her virtues. So balanced, so sane, so reasonable is our mother church. Continuing in this chapter five is about Mary, a sign of sure hope and of the solace and of solace for God's people in pilgrimage. My next highlight here in the bodily and spiritual glory, which she possesses in heaven, the mother of Jesus continues in this present world as the image and first flowering of the church as she is to be perfected in the world to come. Likewise, Mary shines forth on earth until the day of the Lord shall come as a sign of sure hope and solace for the pilgrim people of God. It gives great joy and comfort to this most holy synod that among the separated brother, uh, among the separated brethren too, there are those who give due, due honor to the mother of our Lord and Savior. This is especially so among the Easterners, who with ardent emotion and devout mind concur in reverencing the mother of God, ever virgin. Let the entire body of the faithful pour forth persevering prayer to the mother of God and mother of men. Let them implore that she who aided the beginnings of the church by her prayers may now, exalted as she is in heaven above all the saints and angels, intercede with her son in the fellowship of all the saints. May she do so until all the peoples of the human family, whether they are honored with the name of Christian or whether they still do not know their Savior, are happily gathered together in peace and harmony into the one people of God for the glory of the most holy and undivided Trinity. How can you not be moved by this? How can you not be inspired by this? How can you not be set on fire for your Christian faith, your Catholic faith, by words such as these? I don't understand how anyone can critique the Second Vatican Council, not anyone that's read it prayerfully and lovingly in docile submission. You can't. You can't be an enemy of an ecumenical council because it's God Almighty who, pr who protects, who guarantees the infallible truths that are taught therein. And it's not just doctrine, per se. It's not just definitions of dogma, explicit definitions of dogma that are protected by God in the church. It's not. We owe all of the teachings of the Sacred Council, the assent of mind and will. If you are not ready to give assent of mind and will, you are removing yourself, whether you know it or not, you're removing yourself from the bosom of the church. So moving on, let's go back and see what context we are in here. I think what I'm looking at now is a footnote. It's a footnote from the paragraph I just read, okay? The Constitution here takes up the very delicate point of the relationship of the Catholic Church as it presently exists, governed by the Roman Pontiff and the bishops in communion with him, to the Church of Christ. According to the Constitution, the Church of Christ survives in the world today in its institutional fullness in the Catholic Church. Okay. So what we're looking at here is uh, the footnote 23 uh, that subsists in portion 
Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. So this is from a couple of episodes ago. So uh, going back to that footnote now, I'll reread it. Knowing that it comes from that subsists in portion of this document. So we're in the footnote. The Constitution here takes up the very delicate point of the relationship of the Catholic Church as it, pre as it presently exists to the Church of Christ. According to the Constitution, the Church of Christ survives in the world today in its institutional fullness in the Catholic Church, although elements of the Church are present in other churches and ecclesial communities, a point which will be more fully developed in the decree on ecumenism. These ecclesial elements in other churches, far from shattering the unity of the mystical body, are dynamic realities which tend to bring about an ever greater measure of unity among all who believe in Christ and are baptized in him. So a couple of episodes, uh, maybe two or three episodes, I talked about this, subsists in controversy with the set of cantus and whatnot. There are saving elements outside of the church, but those saving elements are designed to bring people into the full communion with Rome. The second footnote, it is called Sancta Romana Ecclesia, the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, in the Tridentine Profession of Faith, as cited in the preceding footnote, and in Vatican I, Session 3 of the Dogmatic Constitution de Fide Catholica. Moving on, the comparison between the Church and Christ is a reminder that the Church, like its Master, should not seek to be served, but to serve. But of course, there is no complete parallelism. Unlike Christ, the Church is not a divine person. In its concrete historical existence, it is capable of being tarnished by sin. In its concrete historical existence, yes. The theme of the Church's continuous need for purification is no innovation, but is found in various ancient liturgical prayers, such as the Collects for the first Sunday of Lent and the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. The decree of ecumenism, building on this idea of inner renewal and reform in the Church, shows its great ecumenical importance, especially for facilitating better understanding with Protestants. So, I just want to turn everything I've read ink, and then we can continue here. More footnotes. The idea that the sense of the faithful, the sensus fidelium, imprinted on their hearts by the Holy Spirit, cannot err, was a favorite theme of Cardinal Newman, who is now Saint Car Cardinal Newman. He's been canonized recently. Cardinal Newman, who foresaw its importance for the theology of the laity, which was in its infancy in his day. The, the fact that the faithful as a whole bear witness to the gospel does not make super superfluous the teaching of the hierarchy. To them, it falls to shepherd the whole flock by clear authoritative doctrine. So we're not confusing or mixing up the hierarchy with the laity. We're just saying that there is a certain type of holiness, a certain type of infallibility that we participate, we, the laity. To guard against a common misunderstanding, the Constitution makes clear that charisms should not necessarily be identified with extraordinary and spect spectacular phenomena, which are, by their very nature, rare. Taking a drink of water here. <clears throat> 
excuse me, the whole question of charisms is well treated by Karl Rahner in his book, The Dynamic Element in the Church. Now we have to have some degree of caution when we read the footnotes. If we're being told to read Karl Rahner, we need to have some level of caution. Uh, slightly controversial character. Um, there, there's several characters uh, bouncing around in my mind. I get little red flags or orange flags when I hear their names. I believe Karl Rahner is one of them. I would need to uh, Google him to find out just how controversial he is. But a uh, little bell going off there. We need to exercise some prudence when reading the footnotes here and when being told to read Karl Rahner. But he may have some very Catholic Orthodox teachings among his works, even if there are other uh, passages in his works that are uh, straying from tradition or from the uh, magisterium. So just be on, be on your guard in the footnotes. Thirdly, the people of God is considered in its relationship to Christ as king. In this regard, it is a fellowship of life. Reflecting the universal lordship of Christ, the church spontaneously tends to spread everywhere, thereby bringing men of every nation into intimate spiritual union with one another. Since the church's unity is vital and organic, it does not impose rigid uniformity. That's uh, over against the Radrads, the Sedevacantists, and whatnot. But rather thrives on a variety of gifts and functions. Moving on to the next footnote that I highlighted, to indicate the importance of union with the church, the council first reiterates the traditional Catholic teaching on the necessity of the church for salvation. This necessity is a double one arising both from the positive precept of Christ, that men should enter the church, and from the efficacy of the church's means of grace, especially her proclamation of the faith and her administration of the sacrament of baptism. For imparting and sustaining an authentically Christian life, <clears throat> the the count the next footnote the council here makes a clear <clears throat> the council here makes it clear that only Catholic Christians are fully incorporated into the Church. But for full incorporation, it is not sufficient to be externally a Catholic. One must one must also be animated by the Spirit of Christ. Where charity is absent, a bond of union essentially to salvation essential to salvation, that bond is lacking. The next footnote. St. Augustine, baptism, mantra donatus. It is certainly clear that when we speak of within and without with regard to the church, our consideration must be directed to what is in the heart, not what is in the body. I often talk about this, this idea that... Uh, this quotation by St. Augustine will be surprised who was in the church, who was out without. Because if we judge by appearances, then we just see everyone that's ostensibly a member of the church is in, everyone that's ostensibly not a member of the visible church is out. That's not the case. We have to look at the heart. Only God knows the heart. Moving on to the next footnote, this paragraph gives a concise summary of the ways in which those Christians who do not have full visible union with the Catholic Church may nevertheless be linked to the Church by salutary bonds. The decree on ecumenism treats this point more fully, especially in Article 3, which details the various elements of the Church that can subsist outside of the visible boundaries of Catholicism. By treating the relationship of the other Christians to the Catholic Church under the heading of the people of God, rather than that of the mystical body, 
the Constitution is able to avoid various subtle and controverted questions concerning degrees of membership, which have been much discussed since the time of Mystici Corporis. So I have sometimes hinted at the fact that the documents of Vatican II have a certain amount of ambiguity built into them because of the vast number of bishops and that human tendency to have a left-leaning or right-leaning politic. And uh, here's an example of a compromise phrasing. We just avoid committing by avoiding the word the mystical body because that would have far too many implications and it would imply a commitment one way or the other and the Council Fathers were not ready to make that commitment. The Council Fathers don't know everything. They don't teach everything in one ecumenical council. They are dealing with the current situation, usually it's heresies, but in this case it's a pastoral council. They're dealing with the current situation, what they currently know, what they're currently inspired to teach. And when I say inspired, I just mean in the generic broad sense of the word. I don't mean that the Holy Spirit inspires the bishops or the clergy uh, or, or even the Pope to teach anything. But the, the, <clears throat> they are inspired as every Christian is inspired by the Holy Spirit in many ways. But it's not the inspiration uh, in the narrow technical sense, the way that scripture is inspired. Holy Spirit wanted them to write what they wrote, and he used their instrumentality while maintaining their free will. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about the Holy Fathers of the Council being inspired. They're just inspired in the way that you and I are inspired. If you read a nice passage in the Bible, you get inspired. That's it. That general sense. So I want to make that very clear. But uh, they avoided the issue by phrasing things in a slightly ambiguous way. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a limitation on how much the council fathers can address, how much they can teach in one council. So they limit themselves and they use a certain amount of ambiguity in the documents when necessary. Because to say otherwise would, to say, would be to say, that the, the, the cardinals at the council knew everything and were ready to teach us everything. That's absurd. Moving on now, I'm just going to mark my, mark my words as they say, that everything is well-ordered to the extent that it can be on a live broadcast. Moving on to another footnote, the council is careful to add that men unacquainted with the biblical revelation and even those who have not arrived at the explicit faith in God may, by the grace of Christ, attain salvation if they sincerely follow the lights God gives them. In a footnote, the council makes reference to the important 1949 letter of the Holy Office to Archbishop, now Cardinal, Cushing of Boston, which lucidly explained how, according to Catholic doctrine, it can be possible for non-Catholics to attain salvation through the grace of God. So I think that goes without saying to say otherwise is completely absurd, right? And uh, I am a triumphalist. I think that the Catholic Church has triumphed on the cross of Christ. It triumphed. The Catholic Church triumphed. I am a triumphalist. I do believe that there's absolutely no possibility of salvation outside of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. That's what Vatican II teaches. But Vatican II also teaches that it's a nuanced thing getting into the church. 
there are means of getting into the church outside of the church. And as St. Augustine said, we can't judge by appearances. We have to judge by the heart. Everyone that's saved is saved by Christ. Everyone that's saved ultimately is Catholic. We may not get to witness it. It's intimate. It's in the heart. Might be on the deathbed. Might be in the final moments, as I said last episode or the episode before. And frankly, it's none of our business. But when you see a good Jew, a good Hindu, a good Muslim, a good, a good atheist, don't judge their heart. Just think that there are means of salvation outside of the church, and they have these means at their disposal. If they follow the lights that God has given them, they are able to come into the church eventually. It doesn't need to be a public thing. Just want to say hello to Converse Contender. Nice to see you. He gave me a little wave, wavy hand there in the Ten Commandments. Thanks for that. I think that's the Ten Commandments tablets you, you gave me there. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to come on your uh, on your channel. Hit me up. Uh, send me an email. Moving on now. Uh, let me color this as red. I think we're still in the footnotes here. To the difficulty sometimes raised, what if the Pope were to define something to which the rest of the Episcopal College or the faithful did not agree. The Constitution replies that the case is a purely imaginary one, since one and the same Holy Spirit directs the Pope, the College of Bishops, and the whole body of the faithful. In practice, the Pope always consults the other bishops and the faithful before making a doctrinal decision. But the validity of his action does not legally depend upon any kind of ratification by them. So as always, a very moderate, sane, reasonable, rational answer. Of course, this answer is given by an editor in the footnotes, but this is basically the teaching of the church, is that the Pope doesn't need the approval of the church to define, but the, the, the Pope does consult with his fellow bishops, and even with the laity. In the case of, in the, case of the assumption... Uh, in the case of the Assumption of Mary in 1950, Pope Pius XII sought the opinion of the laity and of the bishops. In a very uh, unilateral way, Pope Pius XII said, hey, what, what's going on? I hear a lot of clamoring for a dogma on Mary's Assumption. Can you put your feelers out for me? What are the laity saying? What are their devotions? What is their popular piety doing? What's going on? And then he responds and he defines ex cathedra, the Assumption of Mary. So that's an example of where the Pope doesn't need the church to approve of his teaching, but he does lean on the church, puts his ear to the ground, what's going on, and he can, he can be moved by the feedback that he gets from his bishops and from the faithful at large. Moving on, another footnote here. St. Polycarp reference Christ said to have become the deacon. Christ is said to have become the deacon of all. And uh, I'm not sure why I highlighted that. Um, but interesting. Christ is the deacon of all. Another footnote. This article on the participation of the laity in the royal office of Christ 
shows a marked advance beyond anything contained in previous official documents of the church. Note that the laity discharged this function not only by contributing to the moral improvement of mankind, but also by assisting the advance of culture and civilization. So being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we are priest, prophet, and king, the laity. And that kingly function, that royal function, manifests, uh, we're told in the documents of Vatican II, uh, not only in the way that we help the moral improvement of mankind, but also by assisting the advance of culture and civilization. It's a, it's a royal duty and obligation that we have as Christians. Moving on, another footnote. A special chapter is devoted to holiness or sanctity, which essentially consists in separation from sin and union with God, and which may be called the very goal of the church, both in this life and in the next. Pretty straightforward. Moving on, another footnote. The Christian in faith should esteem the passive purification which can result from a patient acceptance of hardship and suffering to free us from the legalistic view of holiness, which would overemphasize external good works and conformity to law, the Constitution reminds us that the true measure of holiness is a sincere and efficacious love of God and neighbor. These are all points that I emphasize time and time again in my podcast. According to a venerable theological tradition, the church, this is another uh, footnote, by the way, the church exists in three conditions. The pilgrim the pilgrim church on earth, the suffering church in purgatory, and the triumphant church in heaven. In faith, the Christian should recognize his solidarity with those who, as the canon of Roman mass expresses it, have gone before us with the sign of faith and sleep in the sleep of peace. So there are three conditions. I like that word conditions. I have to remember to use that word conditions. There are three conditions of the church. There aren't three parts to the church or three zones or three territories. There are three conditions. But it's easy to fall back on a sort of uh, materialistic view of uh, places here on earth, here below. We talk about being here below. We talk about the, the holy souls in purgatory. I don't know if traditionally purgatory is seen as under our feet. I think it might be seen as being under our feet. Not as deep as hell, obviously, but uh, purgatory traditionally has been seen as under our feet. I do believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Moving on, another footnote. The manner in which God continues to give signs of his power and grace through the example of the saints in every generation makes it possible to say that without prejudice to the fullness of revelation, which has been given once and for all, in Christ, God continues to reveal himself and to speak to men through the church. Boom! If you don't know that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father are speaking to you through the church, through the writings of the church, through these 16 beautiful documents of the Second Vatican Council, for example, and through other uh, official teachings of the church. If you don't know that God is speaking to you through the instrumentality of the church in these documents and in different ways of expressing teaching office, the magisterial office of the church, if you don't know that, then you need to read the documents of Vatican II. You need to educate yourself just a little bit better on what the church is, 
and what it is to be a member of the mystical body of Christ, what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a Catholic, the fullness of Christianity. Moving on with another footnote, the Council of Nicaea II and Florence are ecumenically important because they express points of agreement between the Greeks and the Latin churches regarding the invocation of the saints, the veneration of sacred images, and suffrages for the souls in purgatory. The Council of Trent treated these questions once more in the context of the Protestant Reformation. So again, very nothing new here, but re-emphasizing always in continuity with tradition. Another footnote here, the entire text represents a skillful and prudent compromise between two tendencies in modern Catholic theology, one of which would emphasize Mary's unique connection with Christ with the Redeemer, the other her close connection with the Church and all the redeemed. That footnote obviously referring back to uh, the paragraphs on Mary. Another footnote, the Council comes very close here to calling Mary Mother of the Church. This title, while not bestowed by the Council itself, was actually conferred by Paul VI. In his closing allocution, his closing allocution at the end of the third session. Interesting. So that's it for today. I mean, I may come back and do another one since I'm snowed in today, but uh, that's it for this episode. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being here. God bless. For as little as $1 per month, you can support the charitable mission of CVS which has already enrolled hundreds of guests and patrons and their immediate families in the Scalabrini League of the Missionary Fathers of St. Charles Borromeo. By your generous support, you too participate in these benefits. A special Mass offered on each day of the year and the devotion and good works performed by the members of the Society. Thank you for your generous support.